Amen. You'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. We continue through this wonderful chapter, preaching of Peter at the time of Pentecost. Begin reading in verse 14, if you will follow along. But Peter, standing with eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You have made me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would see, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day that you yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucify. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to him, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. Many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. A course in seminary that all seminarians must take is homiletics. It's a fancy word for preaching a preaching class, you know, so that you can learn to 
talk good and preach good, real good. That's why this California boy went to seminary in the South so he could learn how to talk proper English. Say that jokingly, but it is an important class. Preaching is an important part of being a pastor. It's not the only part, as some would think, but it is an important part. And it's important that you learn in this class what is the proper way to preach and also what is not the proper way to preach. At some point in every preaching course, every homiletics course, the professor will say to these young seminarians often, I know you all have your favorite pastors, your favorite preachers, those that you've grown up with, those that you've listened to on the internet, but do not, I repeat, do not try to be like them. Do not try to imitate them. You are not them. You will never be them, nor should you try. And that's an important message to hear. It's an important message not only for seminarians, but for all of us, because God has made us distinct. And for those that are training to be pastors, they're preaching will and must be distinct to them. God dictates truth through personality. And oftentimes when people try to be someone that they're not, it does not work. But as you learn and as you are a preacher, you'll develop, you'll mature, and as a result, you'll create your own style. And it takes time. It's often like learning an instrument. You have to learn how to play chopsticks and hot cross buns and three blind mice before you can master Beethoven. I say all this because this morning we come to a very important sermon. We could call it the sermon of the church of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And quite a sermon it was with amazing results. We saw that 3,000 souls were added because of this sermon. It was a very special sermon on a very special day. We saw last week that it was the pouring out of the promised Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And there was this supernatural sign given to the apostles and that newly formed church that was waiting upon the Holy Spirit to be poured out. Now that it was poured out, it was go time. It was time for the New Covenant Church to go about their ministry. And I find it very fascinating that the New Covenant Church was formed because of the preaching of the Word. And the church still needs preaching and preachers. The Christ-exalting, Scripture-expositing, Holy Spirit-illuminating preaching. It's Through this, that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ forms and advances, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There is very much a spiritual act of God when the word of God is preached, not unlike what is taking place this day. And you might ask, where is it that the apostles, where is it that Peter learned to preach? Was it a technique that he came up with on his own? 
No, he, as well as all of the apostles, learned it from Jesus. As we read in the very beginning pages of the gospel that Jesus went about teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was a preacher. The disciples and now the apostles got the message. They too were preachers. And so Luke records for us 15 sermons in the book of Acts, and this being the first. And from it, we can learn much about preaching in general, and more specifically, the the message of the preaching. And so we want to look at that this morning. Three points. Explanation, proclamation, and then application. First, explanation. We saw in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, before physically departing from this earth, said exactly what was going to happen. The Holy Spirit was going to come down, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the game plan. This is the playbook, as it were. And what we have begun to see in Acts 1 and now in Acts chapter 2 is that that is exactly what is beginning to take place. It's coming to fruition, starting on the day of Pentecost. And so we saw last week with Pastor Myers of how there was the sound, the the rushing wind from heaven. There was the sight, the tongues of fire appearing, and there was speech, known speech, multiple language, so that everyone could hear their own native tongue. And we saw that this was a supernatural work of God, a miracle of epic proportions. Nothing like this had ever happened before, and nothing like it has ever happened since, nor should we think that it should. It was the inauguration of the New Covenant church and ministry, just like the the presence of God filled the temple in the Old Testament, so too the presence of God was now filling the the new temple, the new dwelling place of God, which is creatures, which is believers, the new creatures in Christ. Isn't this exactly what Peter says, that we are living stones, being built up as a spiritual house? And so this pouring out of the Holy Spirit is what takes place today with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When those that repent from their sins and believe and are regenerated. But we shouldn't believe or think that it needs to be a a physical manifestation like what took place here on the day of Pentecost. No, this was specially given with sights and sounds and speech so as to say, do not miss this. This is something new. This is something different. So this is not a second blessing as some call it, but this is the blessing of the Holy Spirit given to all believers. In fact, we will see something very similar to what happened on Pentecost happened to the Gentile converts in Acts chapter 10, which again is a demonstration that this wasn't just a Jewish blessing, but this is a blessing to all believers. Jews and Gentiles, men and women. So this was a given as a 
sign of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you would think that after all of this visual and sensory evidence, that there would be no confusion about what was taking place, but yet we read that there was. There was even some that were mocking and saying that these disciples were, were drunk. They were filled with new wine, that they were stumbling over their words. But Peter, as the representative of the apostles, stands up and gives explanation that day of what took place, which demonstrates that signs and miracles by themselves are not self-explanatory. No, they need explanation, specifically the explanation of Scripture. And that's exactly what Peter does. We see that in verse 14. This Peter, standing up, addresses the crowd, essentially addresses all of Jerusalem, all that were gathered, all that came because they, they heard something was, was taking place. And so Peter gives explanation of what is happening and what is taking place. Now, we should not bypass the significance of this, not only in the church, but specifically in the life of Peter. Remember, this was the man that just days before had denounced Jesus, not once, but three times. And as John Chrysostom, the fourth century church fathers did, he did so at the voice of a damsel, at the voice of a little servant girl. And yet this was Peter, supposedly the rock. But at that moment, Peter looks about as rock solid as water. And yet, what do we see now? No, we do not see Peter the denier. No, we see Peter the preacher, Peter the proclaimer. Peter, the one that stands up in front of all Jerusalem and clearly identifies as a follower of, the G of Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It demonstrates that there is redemption despite our sin. That God is the God of second chances and of a thousandth chances. That God does not cast us off because of our failures. And he actually can use our, our failures. He can even use our sin for his own service and for his own glory. Peter, no doubt, learned about grace and mercy and forgiveness because of his denials in no way that he would have otherwise known if that hadn't happened. And as a result, he could be that much louder of a proclaimer of God's mercy and of his grace as he does that day. And second, doesn't this demonstrate how powerfully God sees us who we will be and not necessarily who we are? Remember, Jesus named Peter the rock long before he was such. But now what we see in Acts chapter 2 is Peter being that rock, being that pillar of the church that he was called to be. How did he become that? 
How does he, how does he stand up that day and become a, a bold preacher? How does he go from, from being a denier to a proclaimer of the Lord Jesus Christ? Was it just because he found his courage like the lion in the Wizard of Oz? No. It's because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit makes us to be men and women that we would by no means otherwise be. The Spirit does a, a mighty work. You know? And therefore, we need, to, we need to pray for that, don't we? We need to pray for the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would have his way with us, that he would mold us, that he would shape us, that he would use us for, for his glory. We need to pray that for each other. We need to pray that for our, our children. We need to remember that, that, that Peter wasn't always a Peter, was he? And neither will our children without the, the Holy Spirit. But by the Holy Spirit, they can be wonderful disciples and followers of Christ if the Lord would do such a work in them. It's a mighty act. You should not see Peter here. You should see the Holy Spirit using Peter to do what he does that day. And what Peter does is he gives explanation of what took place. Peter simply says these people are, are not drunk like many were saying. You know, he even says it's, it's the third hour of the day. In other words, it's, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. It's a little early to be drunk. It doesn't even make sense. But it's interesting that Peter spends very little time refuting those that were clearly trying to dismiss what was taking place as anything other than the, the work of God. And I think there's a, a lesson there, especially in our highly divisive days. But rather, Peter spends his time on is not refuting them, but rather saying this is what is taking place. Peter says you should not be surprised because the prophet, that wonderful prophet with a very good name, the prophet Joel, says, maybe it doesn't say that, but it should say that. The only uh, critique I'd have of Peter's preaching that day is this aspect of Joel. Joel in Joel chapter 2 says that there will be a sign given. The prophet Joel says there will be a sign at the end times that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh upon sons and daughters, on men and women, and supernaturally they'll be given prophecy and visions and dreams, and, and God's revelation will be given to the church. It's a message of fulfillment. Uh, no longer will there be shy pipes and, and shadows as there once were in the Old Testament. No, we now have Christ, and that message of Christ needs to go to the ends of the earth. Why? Well, Joel says it very clearly, because the end is coming. The judgment of the world is about to take place. You see that in verse 19 and 20, where there'll be wonders in heaven and signs on earth and blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Why? Because the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And we know that that day is yet to come upon us, but it is coming, and perhaps even soon. And so what is the promise? What is the promise of Scripture? 
while we wait for that great day to come upon us. Well, Joel tells us in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the point. Peter's saying the Holy Spirit is being given out so that the message can go to the ends of the earth so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is the point that Peter wants to get by. He wants to get that across. He wants to say, do not be distracted by the sounds and by the sights or even by the marvelous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit has one point. He has one purpose, and that is to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as the way of salvation. So Peter, therefore, launches in, after giving an explanation of that day, into the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in our second point, beginning in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. If you want to know what the apostolic ministry, what the Holy Spirit ministry looks like, then you need look no further than that. It focuses upon Christ. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. If you've been part of any of our new member classes that I've taught, then you know that the very first class of that new member's class is on the gospel. And we use this text, this preaching of Peter at Pentecost to talk about the gospel because I know of no better text that so clearly focuses on the essence of the gospel. That scripture that says, here is the gospel, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we focus upon the person and work of Jesus. And the same is true today. If Peter was able to stand here, if the same Holy Spirit that was preaching through Peter today would preach through me, I would say to you, men and women of Smyrna, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Focus upon him. Put your thoughts and hearts and direct them towards Christ, that this Christ was attested by God through mighty works, through wonders, through signs that God did. But he was also killed by the hands of lawless men. Not as a mistake. No, as Peter says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he was crucified and killed and he was buried. Peter goes on to say that's not the end of the story. Death would not does not have the last word. But rather, you see in verse 24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is the main point of Peter's sermon, that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He is not dead, but he is alive. Peter goes on to explain why. He says, how do we know this? Well, because David told us. And I find that very interesting, very fascinating, perhaps. Peter doesn't say, believe this because I told you so. Peter says, believe this because I'm the chief apostle. I'm the pope 
of the church. Whatever I say goes. He says, no, believe these things because this is what Scripture has told us. And he quotes Psalm 16 here, which, interestingly enough, our women of the word on Tuesday morning just studied Psalm 16. Almost like we planned it. But Peter here says, David told us, gives us sure hope of the resurrection. David says in Psalm 16 that, that my flesh and my soul will not be abandoned to, to Hades, verse 27, which means the grave. And he says, why? Because you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Peter goes on to explain that. He says, when David talks about the Holy One, he's not talking about himself. Because Peter will say, his, his body, his bones have seen corruption. In verse 29, Peter will say, we know where, where David's tomb is. In other words, his, his body, his bones are right over there. So what is Peter talking about? Saying, I know that my body, my soul, will, even though it's turned back to dust, will not be forgotten by Jesus. Why? Because the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not see corruption. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And so too shall I. So too shall I. That because Christ is risen from the dead, so too I will rise from the dead. When I am dead and gone and buried in the grave, and that is the, the good news of what Peter is trying to get across to the people that day. It's the good news of the gospel that is being preached this day, that when God saves us, he saves us holy, meaning body and soul and spirit. That's why one of my favorite catechisms, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 37, which I have quoted often in the last several weeks, which asks that wonderful question, what benefit? Do believers receive at their death? And the answer is the souls of believers, made perfect in holiness, do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, this is the beautiful phrase, still being united to Christ, rest in the grave until the resurrection. Do you hear the hope? hope that is needed, needed all the time, but it's especially needed in the life of this church as we've buried one of our youngest, an eight-day-old child, and that little boy, though he's dead, still lives. He lives with Jesus, but what we were able to do on Friday was say, even this little body that now rests in the grave is still united to Christ. And Christ has not forgotten even about his body and that on this earth, he will rise again. On this earth, he shall walk. Not on the earth as we know, but in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because his body is still united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Peter is trying to get across 
what Job so proudly prophesies and proclaims in Job 19 when he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, Job says, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. You see, that is the hope of all of not just the New Testament, but of the Old Testament as well. Job and David and all believers believed in that, that there would be a bodily resurrection here on this earth. And I tell you that there is no greater hope that you can have in the face of tragedy and death. There is none. You cannot find it in any other religion. No other religion ever tries to be so bold as this. No political party can give you such answers or such solutions. No human beings or institutions can provide the the hope and the peace as this. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the gospel alone. That is the good news of Christ that Peter proclaimed that day, and it's the good news of Christ that is still being proclaimed to us this day by the power and by the proclamation of that same Holy Spirit. And that Jesus, Peter goes on to say, in verse 32, that Jesus God raised up has now ascended into heaven and is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. How do we know? Well, again, Peter quotes Scripture, Psalm 110. You see a a pattern here. You, You should. He says, because David, once again, prophesied about this. But he goes on to say, we also know it's true because the Holy Spirit has been poured out this day as you are seeing. Again, this was a sign that was given to show that Christ truly had been, had truly ascended and, and had gone to the right hand of God the Father and had poured out the, the Holy Spirit. And so Peter comes full circle. He begins with explanation and then goes to proclamation of Christ and says, you know all of these things to be true because of what God is doing in your midst this day. And you see how explanation needs to to lead to proclamation. All of these scriptures, in fact, all of scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. If we miss that, then we've missed the point entirely. And the point Peter is trying to get across to to those that day and is getting across to us today that is Jesus is not dead. He is not even gone. He is alive and he is here and he's doing a work. A work in their midst and that day in Jerusalem, a, a work in our midst in this day here in this place by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the question that needs to be asked is, We're going to either be for or against such a work as this. That is the choice. We're either on one side or on the other. And so that leads third and finally to the application. Peter summarizes it there in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ as Jesus whom you crucified. That's the takeaway, as it were. And he essentially says you cannot come to to any other conclusion. This Jesus who is 
attested through signs and wonders. This Jesus who was delivered up by God, that was crucified by the hands of lawless men, this Jesus who is raised from the dead and has now ascended and is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, you cannot be indecisive when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be in the middle of the road. You cannot be agnostic, as it were. You're either against or for Christ. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote, and I quote it in the new members class, but it bears worth repeating. Lewis says, to say I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but do not accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You hear what Lewis is saying. You, you, you can't just be in the middle of the road and just say, well, he was a good person. He was a good teacher. No, he said that he was God. And either he is God or he is not. And if he is God, then we are to worship him and bow down to him and give our lives to him. But if he is not, then he is a liar. And so what is it? What is it for you? And I think from this preaching, from this teaching, you know what it is. He is God. He is then, therefore, Lord and Christ. And as such, we must surrender all of us to him. Nothing can be held back. We belong to him, body and soul. We must give of our lives and dedication to him. We can offer nothing less because he demands and he accepts nothing less. You see that this message hit home that day. This is verse 37. They were cut to the heart. And they asked, brothers, what shall we do? Notice they could have said, well, hold up, Peter. Hold up, Pete. We didn't, we didn't crucify Jesus. That was Judas. Judas betrayed him to the Pharisees, and the, the Pharisees handed him over to the Romans. It was them. It was not us. Not what it says, does it? It says they were convicted. They're cut to the heart. Are you, my friend, this day? When you think of the crucifixion of Christ, you understand that Jesus wasn't crucified because of some injustice, because of some deeds that were done 2,000 years ago. Jesus was crucified because of you and because of me. And if, even if we were the only sinners, Christ would still have to die for us to be saved. And he did. And he was. Because of our sin. And that should still, even if we've been believers for many years, cut to the heart. Bring, bring conviction of heart and soul and mind. And yet what is amazing is that that same sword that pierces is the same one that heals and brings balm. The good news that Christ indeed did 
die for you so that we could be saved, so that we could experience not only eternal life, but we could experience true relationship with our Lord. And just as the listeners that day said, what shall we do? Peter tells them, tells them to, to repent and, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. He says to them at the end, save yourself from this crooked generation. Why? Because this gospel, this good news, this promise, as he says, is for us and for our children and for those that are yet far off, even until the Lord himself returns. There is no greater work, work of the Holy Spirit, proclaim the good news of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy. What a privilege. How do I know? How do you know? We shall be saved. Again, we think about the preacher that day, Peter. The Lord could save and redeem and change a man such as him. The Lord can do the same with you. Or as we'll read in a couple chapters, how the Lord radically converts Saul and changes his name to to Paul. If, If the Lord can use the likes of Paul, then he can use the likes of you. And I say the same about myself. If the Lord can change me, then he can also change and save and redeem you as well. Why? Because what is the same factor? What is it that Peter and Paul and a person like myself have in common? Not that we're preachers. Not that we're up here proclaiming. No, it's the fact that we are chief of sinners. We're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same for you. Christ came not to call the righteous sinners to repentance. And we see that 3,000 believed that day and were saved. How about this day? Will you believe? Will you be saved? Will you be numbered among that crowd? When Jesus returns, will it be a day of judgment or will it be a day of redemption? Is Jesus both your Lord and Christ? Has he saved you? If he has, does that mean demonstrated in your life? Is he the Lord of your body and over your life and over your existence? Peter preached a a glorious sermon that day. A sermon that is still being preached this day. This sermon is probably not as good as Peter's was, but it's no less glorious. Why? Because it's about the same Jesus Christ. And it's never about the preacher. Never. It's always about the one in whom we preach. He is the center of the explanation, the proclamation, and the application. He is both the the message as well as the messenger, and he alone is the one that can save our soul. So does your soul this day say with the crowd, what shall we do? What shall I do? The Holy Spirit would say to you this day, repent and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the forgiveness of sin. Accept the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Why? Because this promise, this promise that extends from Genesis to Revelation, the promise that extends from the beginning of time to the end of time, is still the great and glorious promise of our God, that he will be our God and the God of our children. May that message this day resonate in our hearts and in our minds. And would we be about the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, having it go to the ends of the earth, so that all would be saved. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for a message like this. A message of Christ, a message of redemption, a message of salvation. Lord, we pray that it would never grow cold or old, that we would again and again be amazed at your redeeming grace, who saved the, the like of us, that we would focus our hearts and our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the glorious good news of the gospel that is given to us again. May it be our hope, may it be our joy, may it be our song this day, this week, and indeed for all of eternity. And Lord, as we think about that salvation, would it also, oh Lord, capture the entirety of our life? Would we live our lives in holy dedication to you and give ourselves as your servants to offer our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and beloved, because Christ indeed, has risen from the dead and is coming again. Until that day, O oh Lord, would you allow us to be about the proclamation of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.